secrets. All right. Well, let's let's jump into it. I know you're here for the food, so um, I'm going to do my best to get you get you to it in a hurry. But it really is good to see you all. It's nice to have a nice full room tonight, and um, we are actually jumping back in to Matthew. Uh, we uh, took off last week as we did the All Saints and looked at the Beatitudes, uh, which are part of the All Saints Day uh, liturgy, and today we're back on uh, Jesus having this series of confrontations with the religious leaders that are in his, in his time and in his place, the temple leaders, right? And, we, and we've been going basically verse by verse. The, the lectionary takes us verse by verse through uh, chapter 21, 22, and now we're in 23, uh, starting 23 today, where person after person is coming up to Jesus uh, after he does the entry into town on the back of the donkey, after he uh, then overturns tables in the temples and kind of gets everyone upset, and then group after group are coming after him, right? They're asking him questions. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to do all these things, and he he just kind of outwits them all and tells these stories that confound them or, or comes up with these ideas that amaze them and so they're scared to ask him any more questions. And he's reached the point where literally the last thing that we talked about two weeks ago, uh, after he uh, presents them with some questions that they can't answer, it just says no one dared ask him any more questions, right? So they, they've just kind of laid off and they've made their decision about him. And now what we're getting into is Jesus now after these uh, leaders, these Pharisees, temple leaders, Sadducees, uh, Herodians, all kinds of people have come up and talked to him and tried to trip him up. He now is basically with his own disciples and his own folks after those folks have withdrawn, and he begins to talk about them behind their back, as, as a good person does. And so uh, he, uh, he, he's uh, leaning in now on chapter 23. He starts throwing some heavy punches uh, towards those who are in control of kind of the religious community and the thing that goes on. And, and you're going to recognize some of these verses because I referred to them a couple weeks back. Um, when we were making sure as we talked through these confrontations that Jesus had to not fall into a trap that has been a part of a lot of Christian history, which has been to equate these things with some kind of anti-Semitism, right? To say that somehow Jesus is against uh, the Jewish faith or against Jewish people. In fact, as we'll read again here in a moment, Jesus, in fact, specifically today will say, you should do all the things these folks teach. Just don't act like them, right? And that's his critique. It's not... He has no problem with the fake. The, uh, he, is, he is a Jew. He practices Judaism. All of early Christianity will practice within the confines of Judaism and, and, and beat in the synagogues and do this, right? But those who are in charge at the time are using faith for something it's not intended to be used for, which is not unique to any faith tradition. Uh, certainly we have that in our own traditions as well, right? And so we're going to go ahead and read some of these things that he, uh, he has to say here. And then I'm going to argue that there's two ways of approaching this text. One is easy and one is hard, and I'll let you think about which one we're going to go with. So uh, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12 says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These are, these are religious accoutrements, right? Remember we talked about the Shema, Israel, that talks about to bind these things to your forehead and your, and your doorpost, right? The phylactery is actually something they would bind to their forehead that had that verse on it. And, and they'd have prayer robes with tassels that would indicate kind of you know how spiritual you are and they have very ornate ones of these 
The fringes are extra long because, you know, that's what makes you extra spiritual. So they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father that is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Like I said, as I was looking at this passage this week, and this is where, you know, when we weren't doing lecture, I probably would have spent three or four weeks here, to be honest. I feel like there's a lot that you can pull out of this. But I think there's really two main ways that we can approach this very kind of direct and difficult teaching from Jesus. Um, there's, a, the, a least, there's a generous way and a least generous way. Uh, first, we can go about this in the least generous way for those that Jesus is talking about, for those teachers and Pharisees that Jesus is talking about. This is where we, if we put ourselves in the story, get to stand behind Jesus and wag our fingers and shake our heads at these evil, terrible people, right? We're shaking our heads in disapproval. We're behind Jesus pointing at the same people he's pointing at. We're the good guys on the winning team. This is how most of us like to read scripture most of the time. Uh, It's a lot better if you read yourself in it like this. It makes us feel a lot better when we put ourselves in that position, right? I'm getting to sit back and judge the religious hypocrites that Christ is judging, and it is, quite frankly, fun. It's a great way to go about things, and the sermon writes itself, to be honest with you. It's, It's pretty easy because it's not hard to point these folks out. We've got the tape on the charlatans, right? Uh, we've got ironclad proof on video of all the televangelists and the politicians and the bad faith influencers who only use Jesus to garner for themselves their own money, their own prestige, their own power. This is easy pickings, right? I could play some great videos for you. I could, I could, we could do it, right? It's easy. It's hard for them to hide with their private jets and their $5,000 sneakers and their ever-increasingly shameful private lives, which eventually always come out into the public, uh, much to our uh, horror and sometimes delight. We know these folks, right? And they're like these Pharisees, aren't they? They're, They're claiming some kind of religiosity, but they're just lying. They're just in it for themselves. Obviously, they know what they're doing. This is a plan, and they're just working the system. These hypocrites are intentionally and consciously manipulating faithful people and situations. And here we see that Christ dislikes them as much as we do. And that's awesome. And it sounds good. And let's go with that, right? All right, have a great night. Let's eat, right? That, that is an easy sermon to preach. Uh, that's one we all want to hear. That's one we all like. That is the uh, least charitable way we can think about those who Jesus is confronting here. But unfortunately, it's just a little too tidy of a way of dealing with Jesus' words here without ever catching any friendly fire ourselves, right? And if you have ever been a hypocrite or walked with someone who gets exposed in some public or shameful way for their own hypocrisy or someone who's ever had to really own up to their own mess, 
um, you know that it's just never really quite that clean cut, right? Life is a little more, a little more shades of gray than that. So, there's a second way we can read this text. It's likely more appropriate, unfortunately. And that is that we can assume something good of these folks that Jesus is confronting here. And here's what I mean by that. Yes, Jesus is critiquing them, and we need to take those critiques seriously. But I think it's probably more realistic for us to own the idea that those that Jesus is critiquing here are, yes, totally wrong, but also probably more often than not, very sincere. They're sincerely wrong. That these men, and yes, it was only men at this time, really believed in the things they were doing. Right? I understand that the Pharisees at this time, if you were a Pharisee, that means you've been studying Scripture literally your entire life, memorizing books of Scripture. You've had teachers who have poured into you. You have given your life to this thing. You obey every letter of the law and all of the oral tradition that has developed around those laws. You're talking about hundreds of pages of rules that you are obeying all of them, and you're obeying them because you genuinely believe that the Messiah will come and that Israel be, will, will be rescued as soon as all of us can get it all together and do the things we're supposed to do. God is just waiting for us to be pure enough and holy enough to finally come back and set things right, right? You believe this. Why would you do all this if you didn't really believe that? I think they were less dishonest. I'm sure there were some. My guess is they were less dishonest than they were sincerely wrong, than they were misguided and pot committed, if I'm allowed to use a gambling term in church. Now, this way of looking at the text for me, makes this one of the most frightening scriptures in all of the Bible. Because if we open ourselves up to that idea, um, it opens us up to standing in front of Jesus' words than instead of just behind Jesus pointing at those that we think are doing it wrong. And there is little as disturbing to me personally, and you may be the same way, there's little as disturbing to me than opening myself up to the possibility that I might be both sincere and wrong. I assume it's very common in other people. I just don't want it to be true of me. But let's be honest about it. This has got to be true of all of us sometimes, right? We can be sincere and wrong. So let's, let's think about it. How often do you really think people are consciously and intentionally hypocritical? I mean, I know it happens, right? I, I know that there are some people that know exactly what they're doing and they're just purely manipulating a situation. They are purely lying in some way to get ahead or to get something. I know that exists. But how often do you think people are really consciously, intentionally hypocritical? I don't think that happens that much. I think what's more true of us is that we as human beings are incredible justification machines, right? We can convince ourselves of incredible things when it's what we want to believe. Largely, human beings do what they want to do, and then we find a way to make ourselves the hero after the fact, right? I certainly do that in my life. I think it's a hardwired position in humanity, a posture that we have. I don't know that there'll ever be a day until they're old enough uh, to you know, pay for my dinner 
that my children will ever be confronted with something they've done that's obviously wrong, and they will sit there in front of me and pause for a moment and consider what I've just called them on, the wildly, uh, the, the actions that they just performed that are wildly unjustifiable, and say, you know, Papa, you are right, and I am wrong, and I shan't ever do that again. That's how we talk in our house. We're very spiritual. I never did that as a child. I don't think my children will ever do it. It doesn't matter how busted one of my kids is on something that they obviously shouldn't be doing, that we've told them not to do directly. They know they shouldn't be doing They're sneaking and they still get caught, that they don't immediately switch into finding some way to make themselves the hero of the story and I'm the villain, right? That's what we do as human beings. It takes a lot of maturity and a lot of depth and a lot of you know, like self-reflection for a person to not have to be the hero of their own story all the time. We're not good at it. So tonight, let's try to be mature enough, introspective enough to stand in front of this teaching and humbly admit that it could actually apply to us. Maybe Jesus is talking to us as well. That we can be sincere and convinced and also be wrong and ultimately hypocritical. It would be foolish, I think, for me to believe that I can't fall for this same kind of thing. It would be foolish for me to believe that my own religious practice couldn't also become an obstacle to that which was supposed to be its object, which is what I think Jesus is really railing against here. What's supposed to be the object, instead they're creating obstacles to that thing. If we allow for this fact, I think that we'll find that there's at least two things here that Jesus wants us to be on guard against in our own faith and practice. First, I think our religious practice be can become an obstacle when it adds more burdens to our neighbors. I think our religious practice becomes an obstacle when it adds more weight, more weight to our neighbor's burdens. I think we have the capacity to, like these Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, place it on others, and then refuse to help. In fact, Christianity is kind of known for it sometimes. And what could be more anti-Christ, right? In fact, earlier in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, that Greek word is krestos, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's literally the opposite of what Jesus is proclaiming to people here. My yoke is easy, krestos, and my burden is light. Other translations for that word krestos, and it's kind of negotiable which one you choose here, because it's only used a few times in Scripture, Another translation for that word krestos, other translations could be useful, virtuous, good, manageable, pleasant, kind. Is this what people on the other end of our religious practice would say about our faith? Are these the adjectives they would use? In fact, I have been in many situations where I have boldly proclaimed, a lot of times in trying to explain why we do what we do here at the church or why we've made the decisions we have, that I believe in a Christianity that is gentle or humble or easy or light. Jesus' words, not mine. 
And pretty quickly, I get determined to be too wishy-washy and accommodating or soft on the crimes of sin that the world needs to, be, you know, needs to have addressed with them. Right? After all, Mike, Christ turned tables over. He called out and confronted the sinful around him. Like the scripture today, Jesus stood up and boldly proclaimed these things. And you just want to sing kumbaya and hold hands and not tell the truth to those who need to hear it. And there are a few things that I could disagree more with than this critique. And not just because it's of me often. But one, I don't think it's what Scripture teaches at all. The, the Scripture we just read, I think, doesn't point towards that. Uh, in fact, another place that that word krestos is used in Scripture is in Romans 2.4. The chapter right after uh, the one that is maybe used more than any other in all of Christianity to uh, beat people to smithereens. Paul says in, in chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you, do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, do you not realize that God's kindness, Christos, is meant to lead you to repentance? I think Scripture clearly teaches us that the easy, kind, pleasant, however, whatever word you want to choose there that fits, yoke of Christ is what changes us. Not the pummeling Christians have historically preferred as a means of producing repentance, but God's kindness. And yes, Jesus did turn tables over. He did get angry. He did speak truth. But he spoke truth to power. Jesus always punched up. If that's a phrase I'm allowed to use for someone who never actually physically punched anybody and was very much against it, he always punched up. His critiques were always reserved for those who had power over him in the systems of this world. His confrontations always put his own life and his own reputation in danger. Christ never punched down. He always protected the vulnerable, the needy, those carrying the weight already of this world. This is how Christ postured himself in the world. This may even be why he warns us about the dangers of power and riches, because when we get a bunch of power and riches and advance ourselves too far in this world, it's more likely we start punching down because there's a lot more people underneath us. I think I could talk about this all day. We need to get to the second point sometime. But I think point one where our faith can become, uh, again, become an obstacle is when our faith produces a heavier burden on those around us. Second, second way that I think Jesus is, uh, is addressing here, that our faith becomes an obstacle to that which was supposed to be its object, is when our faith becomes more about our success as individuals than our sacrifice or service to each other. When it becomes more about our success as individuals than our sacrifice and service to others. A whole lot of Christianity has taken on this mindset, in the, especially, it seems to me, in the last couple decades, of it's just kind of a, you slap Jesus on the get-rich-quick scheme or a Your Best Life Now, which actually happens to be the name of a very popular book, where all it is really about is us just getting our best out of things. While much of Christian history, people had to choose between their own advancement and faithfulness to Christ, there are plenty of times and situations, and I think we live in one, where our advancement is dependent on some kind of public display of faith, and when that happens, that complicates motivations greatly, doesn't it? Suddenly, I'm benefiting from these public displays. Incentives have a great way of changing the math on almost everything, right? In fact, you can largely control human behavior with incentive structures. 
Just ask your smartphone. And when the incentives change, we should be mature enough to question and examine our own motivations. I can think of a thousand different examples of this as someone who went into professional ministry. But I think about my own story when I first began to preach in college. Just understand, when I, when I arrived at college, I arrived as a, an 18-year-old who genuinely, this is not me trying to be, you know, some kind of false humility, who literally was never good at anything, right? Uh, I was not a part of a single club in high school. I did not play a single sport for my high school. I did not make honor roll. In fact, I was ranked very low in my class when, we, uh, when I graduated. I wasn't smart or good-looking or athletic or any of the things that made you anybody, right? I just didn't have any of those things. I had never found the thing I was good at or that I felt like I got some self-esteem from or those kind of things, right? I, I just hadn't found that. And when I got to college, it was the first time there were some people that kind of poured into me and encouraged me in a couple of areas. And one of those areas was I got asked to get up in front of people and talk. And I'd never done that before. In fact, in high school, when I'd get in front of people, I would shake so badly I couldn't read the paper and I would just like sit down and take the F for the oral presentation kind of thing. But for whatever reason, I said yes to it and I got encouraged in it and it went well. And suddenly... For me as a 19-year-old going on 20, I had found something I was quote-unquote good at. And not only was I good at it, but I went to a school, it was kind of like William Carey on the beach down in South Florida is essentially how I would describe it. <laughs> and so being a young man in that context, because there was only men that were supposed to be doing this uh, there, being a young man who could get up in front of people and preach brought a lot of good things with it. Uh, it wouldn't have made me very cool at a state university, but it made me pretty cool there, right? And so I got a lot of attaboys, and I got a lot of pats on the back, and I got a, a lot of encouragement, and I had never done anything that warranted that from people, my peers or people who were like above me or teachers or professors. I'd, it was the first time I'd experienced any of that, and I leaned into it. After four to six times preaching in front of people uh, and, and kind of feeling like I'd had some success each time I did it, I knew what God's call was for me in all the world. The, my calling in the world was to bless huge crowds of people with my amazing words. I knew it. I knew it. And, and I was sincere. I, was, I, I mean, I believed in Jesus. I wanted to do things for the kingdom of God. And all, I, all the, I knew the right answers. I, I was in Bible classes, and I knew what you're supposed to do. And all that was true. And also what was true at the same time, was it was massively feeding my ego. And it was, it was mostly just about me feeling good about myself. I didn't have the foresight or the intelligence to recognize that about myself at the time, but that's what happened, right? And there was this camp that used to recruit from our school for their worship leaders and their camp pastors. And now that I was the next Billy Graham and I knew it, uh, I applied for that job confidently. And and I made it to the second round of interviews, which means they sent someone to come and watch me preach someplace. And I preached somewhere. And it went well, and I got great feedback from it. And the person shook my hand and told me what a good job I did. And so I began to prepare for my summer of changing the world, going to this camp and speaking to large groups of youth who desperately needed to hear the manna that were my words. And then I came back from class a couple weeks after they had come to hear me preach, and there was a light shining on my, flashing on my answer machine, and... So an answering machine was a thing we had hooked up to phones because <laughs> they hadn't invented voicemail yet, and there's an actual tape. Okay, a tape is a thing 
that, no, okay. Anyways. <laughs> Dating myself a little bit here, but the flashing red light and a, and a number from uh, the, the town that I knew that camp was based in, so I was so excited, and I hit play, and, here, and I'll never forget the exact phrase that was, that was uttered on that, which was, hey, I'm calling from so-and-so camp, uh, Michael, quote, in light of other applicants, we cannot offer you a job this summer. Which I'm not sure who wrote their, uh, their breakup letters at that camp, but that is a pretty awful way of phrasing it. It's like, we would totally offer you a job except other people. Um, if no one else existed, if no one else had applied, you would be totally qualified for this job, right? And I laugh about it now, but I mean, it, it, wouldn't, it would have hurt less if someone had punched me square in the face as hard as they could. Because all of a sudden, what I knew to be true about me and about the ministry and about all the things I was going to do was just like gone, right? I, was, I was literally had to sign up. I was going to be a telemarketer for the summer to earn enough money to kind of buy the things I needed. I went from saving the world to telemarketer like that. And I spent the next like four or five weeks honestly just kind of like devastated. I didn't know what to believe about myself, any kind of self-confidence that I had to you know, derive from these things I was doing and all the, the compliments I was getting were like just wiped out to zero again. I just, I just really struggled with it and I had this really important time in my life where I had this time with, where God really did teach me something. And I, for some reason, with the help of some people who were older than me and wiser than me and who could discern what was kind of happening within myself, finally got this, a chance to step outside of myself and look back at me and realize what this was really all about. It was just about my ego, right? It was just about what I wanted and me feeling good in front of a group of people and getting this, all, it was all about me, right? I wanted, I wanted the fancy prayer robe. I wanted the extra wide phylactery. I wanted the best seat at the banquet. Like that's what I wanted. I'd never had that before and I got a taste of it and man, I wanted more. It just happened to be couched in Jesus. And about, about a week before the summer started, I got another call. This time I was home, so they didn't have to put it on the tape. That, you know, some of you don't know what a tape is. But, and, and they called and they said, hey, someone dropped out, and uh, we need someone to do one of the camps. Do you still want to do it? And I, I jumped on it, and I said yes. And, I, and thankfully, I had that few weeks before then because it totally changed the whole posture I had going into that summer. And then... They put me at the smallest camp that moved every week, which meant I was really just a, basically a glorified bus driver the entire time. And that when I was speaking to groups of kids, they had been working all day, and it was a very small group, and so half of them were asleep. And it was one of the more humbling experiences of my life, right? And it was exactly what I needed. And that same lesson is a lesson I personally have had to learn over and over and over again. Because I happened, I, I don't live in a place where me getting up here and delivering what could be considered a good sermon puts my life at risk with the government or with some you know, group out there who hates what we're doing. Like that's, I don't live in that place. I haven't lived in a place where if I do a good enough job up here, it might get me a free meal over here or a free round of golf there or, or you know, people applauding me and thinking I'm someone special. Like You have to really, once the incentive structure gets moved like that, we have to really think about why we do what we do. And I think that's a lesson for all of us, right? Now, you may not be in my position. It may be more obvious for someone like me than it is for someone like you. But we do live in a place where you can't get elected to anything if you're not a deacon at whatever church, right? And, and you move up in your businesses if people understand that you're the right kind of spiritual and the right kind of Christian. And there is an incentive structure here, too, 
And the degree to which our faith is feeding our own ego and giving us what we want is something that should sound an alarm bell for us. Truth is, we have those kind of incentives around here, again, even if you're not a pastor. The appearance of faithfulness can get you a long way in our particular context. And we can never underestimate our ability to sincerely believe and still have a faith that is really only about our own ego and our own advancement. The prosperity gospel is not just for guys with super white teeth and bouffant hair. It's for anyone who approaches this like it's a self-help program instead of a journey towards Christ's cross. And I imagine we're all guilty of it sometimes. I know I still am. Okay, it's late. We need to eat. Jesus has stepped on our toes enough, right? So let's stand in front of this teaching. I'm not asking you to leave here depressed. I'm not asking you to leave here feeling beat up. None of those things. Let's take a good hard look at ourselves. Let's ask ourselves the hard questions that Jesus puts in front of us. Assuming that the majority of these deeply religious Pharisees were both sincere and wrong, we're left to look in our own mirrors, to ask ourselves the hard questions, and that's okay. To ask ourselves, how much distance is there between what we believe and how we behave in this world? To what extent does our faith lighten or further burden those around us? In what ways is our faith just a means of making ourselves feel justified or righteous or superior? Let's assume that we're all sincere and ask the harder question. Does the practice of our faith bring form to the God of love in a tired and weary world or not? Are we putting up more obstacles to the one that is supposed to be our object? Or are we humbling ourselves, serving as Christ, and showing people the way of love? Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are grateful that you are a God of humility and grace and forgiveness. That you are a God who came to serve and not be served. That you rode into, uh, you rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. You refused to take up a sword against your enemies. You allowed yourself to be killed by those who hated you and whispered forgiveness over them while they were doing it. That the faith that you lived before us, the faith of Christ, is one of humble love. It's a way of the cross. God, we will just assume that every person that takes the time out to even sit in this room and listen to some songs and a sermon and take communion and be a part of a church is sincere. I'm not sure why you would be here if you're not. But God, we also confess that um, while we are sincere, uh, we are sometimes wrong. And sometimes we are doing things for the wrong reasons and sometimes the fruit we are producing works against the very thing we think we believe in. So God, give us the courage and the wisdom to see those things for what they are, and to rid ourselves of them. May we get rid of all the religion that weighs this world down, 
And may we embrace the love that shows it the light of your, uh, of your life. God, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.